All right, Mickey here with an advert for BetterHelp Therapy Online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal, and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, innit? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom. Which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 284 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and half of my Christmas tree is decorated. Is it like top half, bottom half? Top half is decorated. Like Brett Eklund, which we'll come to later. (laughs) Yeah, I found some sort of sex worker to come and play the bottom half of my Christmas tree. That's exactly what's (laughs) happened. And that means if the kitten attacks them, you know, I paid for it, it's fine. But that is why only the top half of the Christmas tree is decorated. Because as I was putting the decorations uh, on, Mr. Trousers was like, do you know where this would be good? In my paws <laughs> and in my mouth. Bless uh, him. I've been having a lovely time on Twitter looking at people's cats destroying their Christmas trees. <laughs> Maybe I will be sharing some footage at some point. I've not put any of our really lovely glass baubles on this year. It's It's kind of, yeah, it's not quite as resplendent as it usually is but it is still packed with dinosaurs which is what i'm excited about i don't know what we're gonna do i genuinely don't know what we'll Uh. do because like we have to have a christmas tree because lara would be devastated if we don't but that fucker is going to absolutely (laughs) destroy it you want stuff like this jen i am holding up 
a felt octopus. This is Mrs. Octopus. And then, although, it, to be fair, it does look all the world for like a, a cat toy, doesn't it? And maybe that's why. Uh, yeah. I want a tree like that, Mick. That's what I want. I want a tree that looks like that, that looks like it couldn't necessarily just be toppled with... I mean, he's just going to absolutely fuck everything. I don't, I'd, I'd perish the thought, to be honest. Do you know what? Mr. Trousers was initially very interested in everything that I was doing to the tree, but touch wood... Left the lounge door open last night. Tree still standing this morning. My cats have no interest in the tree, which frankly amazes me. Oh, they look at it when the lights are flashing, mm. but they've got no interest in climbing it. Whereas Frank was permanently on top of it as it was like bowed down in half with the weight of it. Yeah, I'll yeah. send you a little video later, lads, of Please Mr. Do. Trousers when he was testing to see whether the tree was a solid surface. <laughs> Just with his paws getting further and further into the tree. Hannah, do yours not even get scared by it? I, I imagine yours sort of cower a little bit as, as the tree comes out. No. No? Nothing? No. They're mostly disinterested. I don't really know why. Anyway, I'm Hannah's on Levy, and at the weekend I went to Button House. That's so oh. exciting. Yeah. Did you see any ghosts or any politicians without any trousers on? No, and thank God, no. <laughs> West Horsley Place, interestingly... Bamba Gascoigne inherited from an aunt that he didn't know existed, like in a similar way to Alison. And it's... Oh, I've not thought of Bamba Gascoigne for a good 20 years, Hannah. Exactly. <laughs> it's only open a couple of days a year. It has open days, weddings and stuff. You know, much like Button House. I went with my nephew and one of his friends. And I don't spend a huge amount of time with teenage girls. Most of my friends, my cousins, have boys. And I wondered if you could guess, Mickey, who... A teenage girl's favourite ghost is. Because I was really shocked and then immediately I thought, of course it is. Was it Kitty? No, it wasn't no, Kitty. No, not Kitty. I mean, I don't know. I just assume everyone's favourite ghost is Robin. It was Thomas. No. Oh, of I don't know how he's is. anyone's favourite ghost. Teenage girls. They've been told Which it's romantic Thomas? to have someone stalk you. Well, they've certainly been told it's romantic to have a poet who dies young, right? You know. Oh, he's the poet, okay. Yeah. But he's so, yeah, of course. He's so creepy. I did point it's that out. It's a Richard Curtis effect, isn't it? I've got pictures of me with that bear. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely need to see those. Yeah. That's incredible. <laughs> I'm Jen Offord, and I'd like to wish you Alice Mary Bat. do 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 have you seen my tweets or Instagram this weekend? No, I have no idea what Alice Mary Bat is. I thought it might be Happy Hanukkah in like in Hebrew or something. So Lyra says to me on Saturday, "Can we sing Alice Mary Bat?" Sorry, what? Alice Mary Bat? Okay, right. Okay, Merry Christmas, the Merry Christmas one. And so after a little bit of further probing, a few more questions. She meant Felice never dad. Uh, well, that's fair enough. I'd seen your tweets on your Instagram, so I knew, but I read it out to Gary, who had seen neither, and he got it immediately. No way! He got it really? immediately. He was like, oh yeah, Felice never dad. I was like, I don't know how to feel about the fact that your brain works the same way as a three-year-old girl's, but great. <laughs> well, I'll be calling on his wisdom in the future. <laughs> It appears to be a specialist subject. My friend Nick sent a thing around our WhatsApp group today, which was uh, 
a close-up of a face on a Christmas jumper and asked us to guess who it was. And everyone decided it was either Fred West or <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or Nigel Farage from the look of it. And I immediately got it. I was like, that's Del Boy. What? It doesn't look like him, but he is the guy that would be on a Christmas jumper, right? Yeah. Unlike Nigel Farage or Fred West. I bet there is a Fred West Christmas jumper there because yeah. people are fucking weird. It did yeah. look uncannily like Fred West, I have to say. Coming up. I'm, I'm interested to know. I thought you might segue, Hannah. <laughs> uh, I, I briefly, my brain was working very fast. The wheels were going and I just thought, fuck it, I can't. <laughs> Coming up, I'm talking to councillor Emily Darlington about how Milton Keynes has all but eradicated rough sleeping. And not in a dystopian way. Good to hear. That's a good clarification. Good, yeah, in a good to hear positive on way. Theatre director Amy Hodge talks to me about the fantastically great women getting some big rep, and in one case, a big rap, in the stage show Fantastically Great Women Who Changed the World. In Jenny Off the Blocks, Terrible Human in an in Objectionable Opinion Shocker and Other Stories. And what's the best possible argument for sex before marriage? Find out as we watch The Wicker Man as it turns 50. But first, we scream at the news so you don't have to. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Steve. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we ask, is it time to include backing up files in that mandatory government training on data security? Or as information escapes, Jen... Well, it's a bit of a shame, actually. I don't know if you've been paying any attention to the COVID inquiry. Our Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, was up this morning giving evidence and he's had a few changes of phone since since the pandemic. And those WhatsApp messages, they're gone. Oh, it was dot, 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 Rebecca Vardy's account. Exactly, exactly. Please don't sue me, Rebecca Vardy. That was just a joke. It's like they watched the Wagafer libel case and were just like, well, that worked well. It didn't, they did it. <laughs> didn't go so well for her. Because the thing is, I have recently changed phone and it is very, very easy to keep hold of your WhatsApp messages if you want to. Yeah, it's that, that last bit of the sentence there, Jen. I think that was key. Uh, although yeah. I do believe that Rishi Sunak has access to various yachts in which a phone might fall overboard. I would agree with that, yeah. So, in what might well be the understatement of the year, I think it's fair to say that what is happening in Gaza is fucked. Mm-hmm. Millions of civilians are stuck in a real-life horror story. Thousands killed, homes destroyed, supplies dwindling or already gone, and winter fast approaching. The consequences and the scale of this loss is just incomprehensible. And the future, whatever that might look like, whatever shape that takes, is going to be messy and dangerous. The people in Gaza, a huge proportion of which are children, are caught between a rock and a hard place. Netanyahu appears to be a brutal psychopath, inflicting a relentless military offensive that has reduced much of Gaza to rubble. Hamas is a terrorist organisation that hates women and LGBTQ plus people and has the killing of all Jews written into its charter. And the situations leading up to the atrocities committed by Hamas on October the 7th remain really, really very complicated. I have been doing a lot of reading in order to try to understand this, and it's still very hard to bend my head around. I do know that it is a conflict that goes back centuries, millennia even. And when we, and by we, I mean the British, have stuck our nose in, we have very much made it worse and then scarpered. 
But we can't look at what's currently happening in Gaza and not want to do something to just make it stop, make the killing stop. Now, denying or attempting to minimise the appalling attack on Israeli people on October the 7th does not help. That is not a helpful thing to do. Calling for a ceasefire seems to me a mixture of political naivety and British exceptionalism, actually, given neither Hamas nor Netanyahu and the IDF seem to actually want this conflict to end or, you know, give a rat's ass about international law and breaking it left, right and centre, rather than they've just been sat there waiting for us to ask them to stop. That isn't the case. And don't get me wrong, I have still signed petitions and written to my MP asking her to support a ceasefire because, you know, what else is there to do than to keep pushing for non-military solutions to this? Well, good question. The answer is there's money. There's always money, isn't it? That helps. Clearly, Gaza is in a situation that will not be healed by aid alone, but aid is still vital. And we can help people affected in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territory by donating to, say, the Red Cross's emergency appeal. Now, I've I've pulled out the Red Cross because it has the Palestine Red Crescent Society working in communities in Gaza and the West Bank. And it also has Mark and David Adam in Israel. You can visit redcross.org.uk to donate and for more information on where the money is going and how aid is getting through. Yep, give money if you can. Feels like all we can do. I do think I'm saying about the ceasefire is worthwhile because if our politicians feel like we care about it, you know, I guess there's influence, isn't there? And it's it's not just us, it's America as well. But like, I, I think we do have some political influence, but yeah. I agree, there's not a whole lot more you can do about it. So Mick, I'm assuming that you, like me, cannot wait until the next general election for a chance to vote these incompetent, contemptuous fucks out of government, right? Sometimes, Jen, I just go into my bathroom with a little bit of paper and a pencil and I pretend (laughs) that I'm doing it already. It's a thrill. (laughs) (laughs) That is the only direction of travel, right? A one-way ticket to uh, a multi-billion pound inheritance and a toasty pension on the taxpayer, eh? Oh, sounds fair. Sounds oh, so fucking unfair. But yes. Yeah, well, I mean anything to get rid of them, to be honest. Uh, yeah, probably. That's probably what's going to happen, I would say. But I mean, we can't rest on our laurels when it comes to the next government, nor should we ever. Not least because a new study by the Institute for Public Policy Research has found that the next general election is set to be the least equal in 60 years. Fucking hell, 60 years? Mm. So the centre-left think tank found that a negligible gap in turnout between different social demographics back in the 60s had risen to 18 percentage points by 2010. Perhaps it won't surprise you to learn that the higher turnout is in the top earners. Gotta look after those assets. Gotta look after those assets. White. And in fact, the bottom third of earners were three times less likely to say that it was worth them voting as those in the top third. Oh, that's so depressing and archaic, isn't it? But that gap between top and bottom earners increases further once other factors are brought into the mix. Gaps, for example, between homeowners and renters, graduates and those who didn't attend university, and older and younger voters as well. The study didn't look at political allegiances, although you can make some pretty strong assumptions. Gotta look after those assets, Jen. (laughs) It's also pretty easy to draw conclusions as to why this gap is growing when we look at our politicians charged with representing us in Parliament and the ways in which this gap has been actively pursued by some of them. Uh There's 
not loads we can do about it right now, but one thing we can do is make sure that we're registered to vote. And we can also keep shouting about the absolute scam that is voter ID well in advance of the next general election, whenever that might be. Go and get some ID. Tell everyone you know to get ID. There is free ID available, but you do have to be registered and have like get it sorted in time. So talk about voter ID. Absolutely. Yeah, couldn't agree more with you on that one because it is a scam, but it is happening. Like the, the yeah. reason that they brought it in and those reasons are atrocious. But thinly veiled. <laughs> Not at all veiled. <laughs> See through. Completely transparent. Anyway, yep. uh, Mick, would you like some good news? Oh, have you found some? I'm very impressed. Yeah, sort of. Uh, <laughs> is it is the good news, the joy on my little face when I come out of my bathroom having pretended to vote the Tories out? Um, that is a delightful image, to be fair. Uh, this is probably a bit... I don't know. I, I'll just... Uh, we'll, we'll crack on and you can tell me if it makes you happy or not. Okay. So, I mean, it's a bit of a bit of a bummer to start with. I, in conversation with you and various others recently, I have been taking the line, look, if we're going to privatise the NHS, can we just get on and do something so that people can stop dying unnecessarily? I, I do see your argument, for sure, that people dying unnecessarily is a very strong point. If it's I'm compelling, isn't it? Yeah, it's compelling. It's not because I want to see the NHS privatised, it's because, to me, it seems sort of inevitable at this point. But... I saw a story this morning that gave me a fleeting moment of hope, which I thought I would share with you. Good, let's have some hope. So, of course, we're all well aware, sorry, this is, this is the downer, we're all well aware <laughs> that waiting lists for planned NHS treatments were, as of August, at a record high of 7.75 million, almost doubling since 2007. Jen, this is good news that you're bringing me. Uh, I feel like you've pulled the wool over my eyes so it's far. It's coming, it's coming. <laughs> But surgeons at London's Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital are performing a whole week's worth of operations in a single day as Bloody part hell. of a groundbreaking initiative to help clear the backlog. And basically, all we're talking about here, Mick, is economies of scale. Under the high-intensity theatre lists that they're running, after they finish one operation, the next patient is already under general anaesthetic and ready to go. Essentially, they're just running two theatres in tandem. So instead of a 40-minute wait between surgeries, it's just a couple of minutes. Now, I sense the, the question, and, and there is a, a bit of a but. I'm not sure I'd like surgery on me to be compared to a Formula One pit stop as consultant <laughs> anaesthetist Karim El-Baghdadi did so to the times but I'm very much up for a third of the hospital's gynecological oncology backlog being cleared on one Saturday morning as was recently the case yeah it's tentative good news like yeah there are concerns about being rushed through theatre and also high intensity theatre just sounds like amdram to they're me. not rushing them through theater they're making it more efficient the way like it the sort of crossover kind of thing so i mean i would say like there's a fairly obvious counter argument well what if a surgery goes on longer than it's meant to for example yeah. which i imagine happens quite a lot but they're cleverer people about this kind of shit than i am so i like to think that they've they've got that stuff you know there's ways around it so yeah i just you know if there if there's a way of working more efficiently that gets shit done yeah like absolutely rather this and then some sort of you know jury duty system where i have to perform brain surgery one week and then you're called in in march to do some uh (laughs) some sort of intestinal gubbins like i don't even think gubbins is a medical word if i'm honest with you 
<laughs> Very squeamish, so I really don't want that to be the case. So if we could avoid that, please, that would be great. Thank you. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week when, and I don't know why I was surprised, but here we are. I was surprised to learn of the existence of apps and websites that use artificial intelligence to undress women. I suppose it's almost comforting (laughs) that that kind of shit can still surprise cynical old me, eh? Still, once I did know of their existence, I was not at all surprised to find out they are mega super popular and getting more popular all the time. Indeed, social network analyst company Graphica found that in September alone, 24 million people visited undressing websites. And yeah, I said people because the research said people. But you'd not be wrong if you were also thinking mostly male people. Although perhaps you, like me earlier, are having a cynicism blip and you're also thinking, I'm sure some people are using these apps to nudify men too. Actually, (laughs) Mickey, well, many of the services only work on images of women. So same old, same old for us birds, innit? The number of links advertising undressing apps or nudify services on social media platforms, including X and Reddit, increased more than 2,400% since the beginning of this year. Non-consensual pornography of public figures has long been a scourge of the internet, but privacy experts are growing concerned that advances in AI technology have made deepfake software easier and more effective. Great. I mean, great. What could possibly go wrong? You know, we do know how easy it is to sort this out with police help and the justice system. Ah. There's my cynicism. (laughs) Welcome back, old friend. We are seeing more and more of this being done by ordinary people with ordinary targets, said Eva Galperin, Director of Cybersecurity at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. You see it among high school children and people who are in college. Now, it is a major violation of privacy in person, no matter your age, but that it's happening to kids is extra disturbing. Yeah. There is no ability to give consent there, psychotherapist Lisa Sanfilippo, whose expertise includes sexual trauma, told Business Insider, adding, it's abuse when someone takes something from another person that has not been freely given to them. Yep. Feel sad that that has to still be a reminder in December 2023, Jen. It can't be that people are, like, becoming worse, can it? So why? So why? Is it just because it exists so people are going to use it? There's access to it, isn't it? You know, whatever human invention has been over the many thousands of years we've been around, finding a way to make it about sex has been like the number one target, right? Mm, Pornography kind of thing. So, yeah, it's just, I guess, it's much, much more accessible and much quicker to access as well. And I don't think we've made massive leaps and bounds at all in the realm of consent, to be honest with you, for all we talk about it. I think it's still... A muddy area for a lot of yeah. people when it shouldn't be. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by Councillor Emily Darlington from Milton Keynes. Thank you for joining us, Emily. Nice to be here with you, Hannah. Now, I owe you a second thank you because about a month ago, back when Suella Braverman, Braverman, I can never get that right, was talking about living in a tent being a lifestyle choice. And I thought I couldn't be more depressed. Up you popped in my Twitter timeline. 
with the most incredibly positive news. That's why we're on here to talk to you now, because Christ, we need some good news at the minute. In your role at Milton Keynes Council, you have tackled homelessness in a way that is quite incredible. Before we get to that, I wanted to start by saying our listeners know I'm from Newport Pagnell. They know (laughs) that Milton Keynes has had a homelessness problem because I've talked about it. In fact, in the last decade, Milton Keynes has been given some really quite astonishing titles, including the capital of youth homelessness in the UK and also the place that has the most homelessness outside of London. So I thought maybe we could start with you talking about the size of the problem that you had to tackle and any reasons why you think that it got that bad in Milton Keynes? So I've been a councillor since 2018 and then was given this brief three years ago. And that was just at the point that The Guardian had splashed us on the front pages as being called Tent City. And it was something that I was so frustrated that we hadn't sorted. And I think the reason we hadn't is we saw it purely as a housing issue. And so bringing together both adult social care and housing and seeing it as a whole person issue and understanding that most people who end up rough sleeping already are known to public services in some way, whether it's their GP or the prison service or the police service or the local council. What could we do to actually bring those services around, but also change our relationship with the charities instead of sort of fighting with the charities, saying, actually, what can the charities do that the local authority and other public services can't do? And let's just have a really adult approach to this and let's allow people to succeed. Let's create an environment where people can succeed, often for the first time in their lives, because they've had some pretty traumatic backgrounds. And I think that's the difference. We literally saw it as a tent issue and let's just put people in houses. That doesn't work. There's a long road to rough sleeping. And if you don't deal with the traumas and the reason that they're on the streets, you're not going to help keep them off the streets. I wonder how much you were able to learn in lockdown. The government had a policy for the first time everyone in. So that was great. That meant people were safe. But unfortunately, if you isolate them in individual hotel rooms and you don't have the services that they need, Mm -hmm. you're actually not helping the problem you're just putting the problem underneath the roof if that makes sense it does yeah you know that's really what we learned because as soon as the government program around everyone in was over they were all straight back and sometimes in even worse situations because they'd learned some bad behaviors by people that they'd met in the hotels Uh, their addictions might have been introduced to different drugs and Mm. and other things so actually for some people, it made it worse. Can we talk about what it is that you, you've actually done in Milton Keynes? The headline is basically, I don't want to say Milton Keynes fixes homelessness, but it's approaching that, isn't it? What we've done here is create a situation where anybody that wants help can get it and they can get proper help. That doesn't mean that everybody's accepted it on day one. We still have 16 rough sleepers and they're visited every single day. We know them very, very well. And one day, you know, I believe they're going to say, yes, it's not the same 16. There is some changeover yeah. in that, though there are some very long term rough sleepers in Milton Keynes. And, and they are the most difficult because it is the biggest change to their lives to, to actually come in and, and deal with some things that they haven't dealt with in, you know, t- 10 years, maybe of living on the street. And so that feels much safer to them than having to deal with that crisis or trauma that led them to be on the street in the first place. But essentially what we've done is say, 
We're going to take the old bus station. Anybody who knows Milton Keynes, we have a beautiful listed old bus station. And the top floor... We used to have a terrible nightclub on the top of it back in the day. The nightclub's (laughs) gone. And now that is where our 18 bed shelter is. And so you go in there at night. And then downstairs, we've brought together all the different services and the charities so that you can access the services and support that you need in the timely way that you want to do it. So it's everything from a hot cup of tea, and a friend and somebody to talk to and a charity that might be able to get you a bus ticket or a train ticket back to your family if that's where you're ready to be or things to make you feel better like uh, hairdressing services or washing your clothes all those sorts of things that help you retain that human dignity to really concrete really crunchy stuff like drug and alcohol treatment mental health support your probation meetings you know it could be anything the thing is it's different for each individual and that's the whole point so instead of a person who's living the chaotic life of on the street and not having any really supportive environments they go down have a supportive environment they can access everything they don't need to travel around the city the services can come to them and that Mm. just takes one of those barriers away if you're rough sleeping and you've got to get from one end of Milton Keynes to the other yeah you don't have the money for a bus fare I mean sure you could walk it but that's not going to happen is it And then you miss an appointment, you miss an appointment with NHS, as you know, you miss an appointment, you're all of a sudden off the list. All of these sorts of things start to happen. So how do we support people in those environments to actually take the steps that are needed? But it also has to be quite a forgiving environment. It doesn't mean the first time they engage, they're going to be successful. Some people are, and that's fantastic, but some people aren't. And we need to have that environment where they can, you know, do something wrong. They can self-sabotage. They can do that, but that, that, that they can come back the following week or, you know, two weeks later and say, actually, I've learned something from that. And that's really important as well. Yeah. A couple of years ago, a friend of mine, she was a GP and she did some volunteer work with homeless people. And one of the things that just blew her mind, how many of them had a physical health problem that hadn't been diagnosed because doctors had assumed that they were drug seeking and either sent them away or just given them the drugs. And she was like, I see people that have got herniated discs. I've seen people with all sorts of problems because because doctors just don't know how to deal with them. And she said, as a doctor, that had never occurred to her before. She said, I've probably misdiagnosed homeless people myself just because you're busy and you've got this revolving door of patients coming in. They're not great at self-advocating. So sometimes, you know, because of the way they've been treated by services in the past, because of the way they look or their their mental health issues or their drug and alcohol issues, they assume that they're going to get treated badly. So they'll behave badly because they Mm. assume that's what's going to happen. So you've got to change the whole culture of it. You've got to say, look, we're not going to treat you like a child. You're not a child. We're going to treat you like an adult. And we expect adult behaviors. But then we're also going to give you the respect of an adult. Because there's a lot of this kind of paternalistic, oh, what we we just need to do is, is, you know, make the meals. No, they want to be a part of it. You know, if you're going to have a cafe, allow them to do the washing up as well. Don't force them to. But, you know, allow them to be part of it. Allow them to be part of, of their own solution, of their own story. Because that's the only way it's going to stick. The only way it's going to be sorted. For example, we've got a guy who's been living in a bus shelter for 10 years. And this is an example of where we don't always get it right. Last winter, he finally came in. 
for the first time ever because it was really cold. We visit him every day. He came in and we got really excited. He stayed in the shelter for a few nights. We talked to him. We found him a home and he stayed there for the rest of the winter. And then when the weather improved, he went right back to the bus shelter. And the thing we hadn't recognized was he has a community in that that Mm. shelter. You know, they bring him soup. They talk to him every day. You know, that is his social circle there. And while we were able to support him and many of the other things like, you know, so how do you how do you learn how to cook yourself and how do you learn how to pay your bills and all of those sorts of things? What we hadn't be able to do is recreate that social network for him. And so for him, that was just so important. To, so he went back. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm hoping he comes back in this winter and I'm hoping that we've come up with some creative solutions around that to work with him on that so that he doesn't feel that isolation of being in a flat on his own yeah. as opposed to being a part of uh, of a community where he lives in a bus shelter. Yeah. You know, the decisions that people that are sleeping are very logical if you understand their reasons. They're logical from the place that they come from. The traumas that they have come from often mean that the chaotic lifestyle of never having a permanent address feels safer to them. People yeah. not knowing where they are feels safer to them. We see it as, oh my God, how could you live that way? But no, For them, there's really good reasons why that feels safer, what we experience in our daily lives. And that's what you've really got to ensure that your whole team, from your volunteers in the charitable sector through to your professionals, understand. We're talking about rough sleeping, and it was so visible in Milton Keynes. That Bureau of Investigative Journalism story, Hmm. those pictures of all those tents, particularly since quite a lot of them had the new pizza delivery robots in them. So they looked almost apocalyptic, I would say. They don't deliver pizza. No, that's how they were originally designed. But when we came to Milton Keynes, we said, no, we don't, we're not that interested in pizza delivery. But if they'll stop a short car journey. So they deliver it. They're mostly delivering milk and bread. And yeah, stuff yeah. Like that. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that is one form of homelessness. And it's the yeah. more visible form. Yeah. Let's go back about 10 years. I was working when Milton Keynes News still existed. I was doing some work for Milton Keynes News. And we found a whole bunch of men living intense up at Willan Lake Mm -hmm. and what was most interesting about them was almost all of them had a broken marriage had moved out of their house were basically living in a tent or their car and almost all of them had a job and nobody at work knew that they were homeless and they were hiding they were hiding from their colleagues but they were also hiding in this area of of Willan Lake That's a different sort of homelessness in a lot of ways. Have you gone about tackling that? In some ways, that is the easiest form of rough sleeping to tackle because actually in those cases, what we find them is temporary accommodation, which we hope to then change into a secure tenancy for two to five years, something that they can they can afford. The difficulty is if they're in that environment for a really long period of time, often other things will come into those communities. Right. And the alcohol and the drugs and, and other things will start to come in to to manage the the kind of lifestyle that they're living. You know, they they start to self-medicate kind of. Yeah, if that makes sense. Uh, and then they end up losing their job and, and it all becomes a real spiral. So the key thing for us is we've got teams that go out every single day looking for people. And if we see them, you know, we have a no second night out policy. They're straight in to the shelter and then through and supported into accommodation. The faster we can do that, the more success people have. That's why we don't do the severe weather emergency protocol anymore because it's our policy all year round, no second night out. 
no matter who you are. And the faster we can find you, uh, I'd prefer, they much prefer they come and tell us at the council that this is their issue. Yeah. But sometimes pride gets in the way of that. But the faster we find them, the more successful they are in ending their time on the street. Can I ask how much this has cost you mm. and how you've managed to free that money up? Because I can't think of a council on earth that has excess money at the moment. You don't. <laughs> Just to be clear, we do not have excess money. And as you know, Milton Keynes, very popular place to live. So it's quite an expensive place to live as mm. well. The way we fund it is to understand it as a social care and a housing issue. So we're not just looking at that, those particular pots. We try and access government funding. They don't particularly like our scheme at the old bus station. So they don't fund that, but they'll fund other activities of ours. So we do a lot of prevention activities. So if a young person gets kicked out of their house, they don't come into the shelter. That's not appropriate that we have sort of foster families. As I like, that's the easiest way to understand. And we have DePaul, who's our charitable partner, and they will do family counselling to see if they can reunite that family. And if they can't, we work with our partners like YMCA, who provide housing for young people. So we try at each point to, to be quite creative with our budgets. We know mostly the savings is what's realised in the prison service and it's realised in the NHS, not necessarily in the council budgets. And that's always a challenge for councils, right? We'll do the work, we'll have to pay for it, but the savings don't actually come into us. Yeah. But it's about prioritisation, really. And then for us, this is this is a really important thing. Uh, and so we do absolutely bring our NHS partners and our prison service partners to the table and say, look, you know, you need to work with us on this because... Ultimately, we're helping we're helping people coming through your services. But financially, it's difficult. I'm not going to pretend it's not. <laughs> you know, it, it is. We've had more than 150 million pounds cut from our budget by the government. Wow. In Milton Keynes, it's difficult. We have to make difficult decisions. Does it mean we cut the grass less? Maybe. Yeah. Tell me what you make of the current conversation about homelessness in this country. I mean, around the time that I saw your tweet, I also saw a tweet in which council workers were putting tents in the back of, of rubbish trucks. That was in Camden. Comments about tents being a lifestyle choice, it's it's all it's all terribly depressing. I mean, I might as well say it. You're from the Labour Party. What do you make of the Tories' vision of homelessness? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm from the Labour Party. Well, let's be transparent. I'm standing for Parliament. These are the kinds of things that need to change. We have to start listening to people and understanding people rather than just seeking to divide and blame. And that's really what's happening here is look over here. Oh, that person's sleeping rough in a tent. It's their own fault because they're now a drug addict. And you think they didn't start that way. They started as somebody's child. And at some point, as I said, most of these people have had many interactions with public services. What could we have done earlier? Are we a supportive society or are we a blame society? Do we do we care about what happens outside our front door or not? For me, you know, the quality of my life is impacted by the quality of the lives of my neighbours in my community. That's mm. just that's just that's you know right the way through me. I just, you know I don't think of it in any different way. And this whole idea that it's a lifestyle choice—it's almost excusing government of any responsibility in it. Yeah. Right. It's their choice to do it. It's nothing to do with us, which is just not true. How many of these people have been through the care system? What does that mean for children in care? How many of these people have been failed or on waiting lists for mental health services? Yeah. You know, 
how many of these people did not get the support in prison? What led them to being in prison in the first place? How many of these women were abused when they were younger and therefore do not know how to deal or recognize a healthy relationship? Mm. These are all things that lead you into this world of rough sleeping. And on top of that, there is the housing bit. What have we done about affordable housing? Section 21 notices, these are these no-fault evictions. They're the number one cause of our homelessness, not our rough sleeping, but the number one cause of families turning up at the council saying, we've been kicked out of our house. They've done nothing wrong. And landlords have kicked them out using Section 21 notices. The government has promised over and over and over to get rid of it. And they've just published the bill and it's not in there. Instead, what they've done is publish a bill that's going to criminalise rough sleeping. It's staggering, isn't it? It's, I, from, from my perspective, it is, in a nice way, saying a complete ignorance of what's going on out there. And maybe for some of them, they just do not understand how bad it is out there for people, how easy it is for any one of us to become a rough sleeper. Yeah. Maybe they don't have experience of it, or maybe they don't care. I'll leave your listeners to which one. When you look at the, at the scale of the problem in, that there was in Milton Keynes, and I mean, honestly, what an achievement. So many of them were young boys, and who am I to say who's a more sympathetic victim? But And if you still can't can't find the sympathy, you know, for someone who who's barely out of childhood and is straight out onto the street. I mean, there's just no hope. Yeah. There really is no hope. Well, there is hope because... Uh, tell me, has anyone asked? Has has any other council said? Many. Many. Yeah. And I'm speaking to the APPG next week on homelessness. Yeah, absolutely. I, To be honest, I, I saw Suella's comments and I was so angry and I was literally still in bed drinking my cup of tea on a Sunday morning and just got so angry and I always think of that Michelle Obama when they go low you go high and I just like you know what there's a better story to tell here absolutely and yeah I'm just going to say what we've been doing quietly working you know working as hard as we can with all of our partners in Milton Keynes and I didn't realize it would take off like that I didn't realize that tweet was also what other people needed and the reception has just been overwhelming I've had letters in the post and cards and, and emails and, and, and just really lovely stories from people who care about this issue from across the country or who were rough sleeping themselves and, and have been able to get out of it and said, look, I just wish somebody had understood what I was going through at the time, you, you know, that thank you for articulating this. Instead of turning people into whatever narrative Suella Braverman and the government was trying to create around rough sleeping. But from my perspective, we're very much about saying it's not our fault. They choose to do it. We've got nothing to do with it. Therefore, we're going to criminalise it. Yeah. Makes no sense. It doesn't. Well done. Genuinely well done. Uh, Good luck. Uh, Maybe you can come back to talk to us. if When you win, let's be positive because, I mean, this is the most anticipated thing. I think for five years I've been like, when can I vote again? When can I vote again? When can I vote again? You've got a guy called Chris Newport Pagnell for your family. And then I've got the MK Central one. uh, MK Central, which, fingers crossed, should be very good for us. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. 
And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I am joined on the Zoom by Amy Hodge, theatre director of smash hit pop musical, Fantastically Great Women Who Change the World. Amy, hello. Hey, how you doing? I'm all right, thank you. Sadly, I'm not up a tree. Listeners, it looks like Amy is like perched up a tree. <laughs> I'm sitting in this very chilled out space. Good, it's good for the calmness. It does make me look like I am um, I have more of a zen life than I do. <laughs> my life is usually chaos. <laughs> if, if you live it, you can be it. That's my theory. <laughs> so, Amy, that is one hell of a title. Who are we talking Oh, dude, I mean, you could put so many women there, but we're, we're, the, the show is inspired by the books by Kate Pankhurst. So we have totally taken from the original book that she made. So it's, it's amazing women. There's Frida Kahlo in there, Emily Pankhurst, Rosa Parks, and Frank, Marie Curie, and then some lesser known people like Mary Anning, who was this amazing woman who you probably know you're nodding, who, who dug up wonderful fossils and didn't get recognized till very late in life, and Amelia Earhart, who was who was a big pilot. It's a sort of list of of amazing women, fantastic women, and you get a little bit of information about each of them. How is it all tied together? Is there a narrative? Yeah, there's a narrative. So there's a, there's a young girl who has gone on a school trip and she's got lost and nobody cares that she's disappeared from her point of view and she's a bit lost in herself. And she breaks into this museum that isn't open called the Gallery of Greatness, which is very much from the books. And then out of the museum, out of the boxes, these amazing women pop out and give her different splurges of advice as we sort of navigate her journey that she's going on because she's got stuff going on at home and, and life's, life's hard for her. And they, they help her and they support her and they do it in all different ways. And formally, it's got amazing tunes. So you get a big rap by Emily Pankhurst about deeds, not words, which you can't help but love. And Frida Kahlo does this beautiful number about the world of colour. It's super uplifting with a big heart. It's all very pop. Miranda Cooper, who did all the Girls Loud music, Sugar Babe, she's done all the music. So it's really, there's a real pop sound, which is super modern and super of now. Yeah, we're really, we're really proud of it. It's a beautiful show. Crucially, very good pop, not just pop. And you can tell that you're proud of it. There's, there's a real joy on your face when you talk about it, but it does all sound pretty like high voltage and very fast paced. Is it as fun to direct as you're making it sound? Yeah, we've had a great time making it. You know, it is, there's, a, there's a real challenge to taking uh, IP, the intellectual property, in a book and how you bring that onto stage and finding the way to do that and being true to the original material, but also where that original material meets us as makers or me as a director in our Chris Bush, who's done the book, and Miranda, who's done the songs, where, where we all meet that material. And Rhymes, our choreographer, has been a central part to the making of it. So, yeah, there are lots of challenges in bringing it to the stage, but you... I mean, in those challenges are, are joys, aren't they? Because you're sort of these obstacles, you've got to find your way to navigate them. But putting a story into it felt like a big moment because the books are actually quite factual. Uh-huh. They're kids' books and they're, they're factual splurges around all these different women. You get a page for each character and um, I've read them to, to my kids, I'm sure some of your listeners have. So I was really I was really excited when I got approached to make it because I was like, oh, I, I, know, I know the books very well. But yeah, the task of trying to get a narrative into that it is a thing. And I think we found a way through it. And we found a way that this this young kid called Jade, yeah, we found a sort of an impetus for her that, that holds the show together with, with heart. So the book is for kids, but who's the show aimed at? Because it's not just for kids, is it? 
Now that the show is like, I mean, all my mates come and see it and they're like, <laughs> the show's a really good night out for women and for men. Sorry, men, shouldn't forget you. But yeah. I do think there is something galvanizing about seeing such talent on stage telling stories about such amazing women from history with these brilliant, uplifting songs that transcends age and time and, and gender. So the show is very much, uh, yeah, it's very much a whole, I think everyone can enjoy it. It's, it's produced by the same people who produce Six. They're really keen we hit the same sort of market. There's more story in it than Six, but there's a, a familiar pop sound and a familiar sort of front-footedness to the whole show. Get yourselves down there. I don't think you need to take little people with you at all. If you do take little people, they'll enjoy it. But if you don't, you'll still have a wicked time and you'll leave with a song in your heart and a skip in your step. It's based on a book by Kate Pankhurst, which you mentioned earlier. An actual Pankhurst. Was there a pressure with that sort of feminist credentials? I was like, oh, it's nice when, when I discovered that. And she's so chilled. I love her. She's a real nice. She lives in Leeds and she's she's made this monumental empire of these brilliant books that are because there's, there's a series of them. But yeah, she is. She's a descendant. She's her. Ah, oh, I'll get it wrong. Shit, should have checked this. It's her aunt. It's her great aunt or something like that. But in Something more. like that. Yeah. Something like that. That's right. You've got it. Still, there's like more collection to Pankhurst than you or I have got. <laughs> Way more. And she's got the name. She's got the name. She's certainly got the, the soul and the drive and the politics. But yeah, there's a brilliant bit in the show where Emily Pankhurst does this, does a big rap about deeds, not words. It's sort of, it's very hip hop influenced, but it's a really, it's a cracking tune. It's joyous as well, because there are really big names involved. There's Kate. There's uh, Miranda Cooper, who you mentioned, and Chris Bush, who just did Standing at the Sky's Edge as well. She's doing all right, isn't she? Yeah, she's doing really well. So it's a, hot, it is, it's a classy team. I think there's a bit of all of us in it. You know, I think we all came together with a real drive to... We started, we started developing it just before lockdown. But I think, I think there's something about the show that is really of now that feels on point in our desire to be uplifted, but also talk about things that matter. And yeah, it's a it's a classy team and everyone's worked really hard to to make it the thing it is. I loved when you were talking about the challenges involved in bringing the IP of a book to the stage. And it felt like working that out and getting that story across was where you got your personality into it and where you got your ideas into it. I've worked quite a bit with, with IP in other projects. And I think there's a really interesting thing about where the present day artist meets that material and how much space you give it's kind of it's kind of less complicated in a way with with fantastic great because it's so modern but when you're taking old books or shakespeare or whatever and you're but but i think the skill of us lot as makers or as artists now is is totally about allowing your own voice to infiltrate get under the skin of and find your way to express that through the form that you love you know so so yeah i think that's a big part of how you of what you've got to get right to to pull it off yeah totally Taking ownership whilst staying true to it. Yeah, yeah. There's, you know, like, otherwise, why why are we doing it? Not in a sort of, not in an ego way, just in a, I'm an artist and the work I make is of an extension of me or and in and, and fantastically great. It's really, there's a really clear feminist strand to that and there's a clear relationship to what it is to be a child and trying to work out who you are in the world, sort of coming of age thing. Totally different from some of the screen work I'm doing, which is really... um you know, a film I'm just doing for that just got fun. I've just done for the BFI that was at the London Film Festival, it was a short film. You know, it was really about sex and agency and sexual agency. So I think you you always find there is a bit of you in in everything you do. Otherwise, 
it's not true to to you as a maker, and you know you have to you have to put yourself into those projects. Absolutely, it's it's a real delight actually seeing and hearing your passion for the project because if that wasn't there, then the project would feel flat. And it sounds like everyone is like so excited about it, and that's what makes yeah. it so successful because it is already a success. This came out a couple of years back. Have you tweaked much when you've gone back to revisit it before the recent run and the tour? Uh, yeah, we have, and to, uh, you know it's it's complicated that thing of revisiting a project because you you do want to change things, and it's quite complicated how the technically in terms of particularly the pop sound because some of it's on track and some of it is played live, and so musically you get it's really hard to change things quickly. So it's been great to go back and revisit things and uh, hone it and polish it and and make a few changes, cut a few bits, tweak a few bits. Yeah, I mean. I probably I drive the producers mad because I'm like, give me a bit more time, and then I can do this. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it is theatre is a live experience. It's different from from film, you know, because once having just done one, you're like, it's done, and it's in the can. You can't go back. Whereas theatre, it's live, it's evolving. There's this wonderful thing which is about the moment you can do all the work in the rehearsal room, and then you meet your audience, and the whole point of it is communicating with other people in space, in time, in real time, and then you learn a whole load of new stuff. Um, so yeah, we have we have we have tidied and tweaked and um, yeah, and the a- actresses have been have been have been brilliant and worked really hard to to help us improve it. Do you have a favourite woman from history featured in Fantastically Great? And if so, why? Hello, pick a favourite child, Amy. Come on, <laughs> that's hard. I can't do either. <laughs> I mean, I, I I'm Jewish, so I do feel like when Anne Frank comes on for a moment, and there's this beautiful sequence. It's the only sort of not the it's a big quiet number in the show with Rosa Parks and Anne Frank and our lead, and I feel I feel an emotional connection to that moment in the sense of you know what my family were born in. My mum is a is a is a refugee came here in the actually was born in Egypt and came here once she could get into England in the in the fifties. But I feel there's a sort of personal resonance with that that I really relate to, that I would I think is important to to share. But I think in terms of like the overall gesture of the show, I I kind of fall in love with Frida Kahlo in her complication and her amazing art and her her sort of the journey she went on to get to a place where she did paint. You know, she was she was going to be a doctor. She was on this mission to be a doctor. Had this horrendous accident a bus accident that changed the course of her life when she was ill she started to paint she picked up a brush for the first time started to paint and that changed her trajectory so I feel in a sort of I just think she's amazing and the song is really uplifting and there's a wicked like um, stomp-esque drum sequence in the middle of it that I love so I think I think probably there's a, a heart to Anne Frank and a sort of love and passion to Frida um, but they all bring they all bring beautiful things you know Mary Curie, none of us would. I'm sure we've had people who've touched, been touched by cancer and what a genius. And she wasn't recognised initially for getting, you know, her husband and colleague got the Nobel Prize and they didn't give it to her. This is all in the show. And then obviously she was like, and then um, <laughs> she was the first woman to receive a Nobel Prize. And then she got two, she ended up getting two Nobel Prizes, the first person to get two Nobel Prizes. So she's amazing. I mean, there's so many amazing women in it. Mary Seacole, you sort of can't help but ache for the fact that she didn't get given the the public recognition for her brilliant work. 
I'm waffling. I could go on. I love that you you started with one, then you added another one, and I love that there was the, obviously your heritage in in Anne Frank, and then uh, then the artist, obviously Frida Kahlo, and then you're like, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say all of them. I'm gonna say all of them. <laughs> I'm sorry, there, I it was a it was a very mean question, so I'm gonna let you get away with it. No, it's <laughs> it's good. It's all good. So, Amy, Fantastically Great Women Who Changed the World is back on tour in various theatres around the country. Listeners, to find out more info on the where, the when and the tickets, visit fantasticallygreatwomenthemusical.com. Are you on any socials, Amy? I'm on Twitter. I'm on X. And I'm a bit on Insta. I'm just getting into it. I'm a bit rubbish, but I need to get better. I need to get better. But I am on. I'm on. I'm Ara Hodge on Twitter and I'm Hodge Ara, A-R-A, on Insta. So, yeah, check me out. Find... find um and follow the show. It's be wicked to get people talking about it. The more people talk about it, the more people, um, the more people come and see it, the better. Because I really feel it's an important, joyful piece of work. Thank you so so much for chatting with me. Lovely to be here. Thanks for your time. You play ball like a girl. Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks. That time of the week where our studs are very much up as we tackle the patriarchy and discuss all things women's sport. OK, that's not a very sporting example this week, but fair's fair, I'm going to be talking about some not very sporting comments from a former footballer, one Mr Joey Barton. Barton has been in the headlines for all sorts of reasons over the years, his footballing career being one of the least written about aspects of his life. You kind of get the feeling that maybe he's missing the limelight after the trial for the assault case against him fell through last year. Or maybe he was overlooked for a punditry job or something. Who knows? All I know is that following the ever-popular formula of saying something deliberately controversial in order to gain attention slash relevance slash self-promotion among massive bellends, Barton has been chatting some shit about women footballers becoming pundits. Lads, he doesn't think they should do it because it's a different game. Their experience is different, etc. So far, so boring. I mean, I guess... He doesn't get to talk about international football then, in that case. Hmm? Shrugs. And I guess I should never talk about assault charges or stubbing out lit cigars in people's eyes because I have no experience of that either. I do feel quite qualified to say that both of those things are bad nonetheless. I'm not going to waste any more time talking about a waste man. He's an objectionable guy. He has objectionable opinions. Oh, and a podcast coming out. I won't be listening. I'll let you decide for yourselves if you want to normalise not caring about what Joey Barton and a whole host of other twats think. Right, on to better news. The BBC Spotty, as in Sports Personality of the Year, nominations are out this morning as I record on Tuesday. Two women make the cut this year. Can you guess, can you guess, can you guess? You've probably already seen. It's Katerina Johnson-Thompson and Mary Fuck-Off Erbs. Absolutely delighted by this. I'd say Mary Apps is more likely to win the popular vote than KJT because football is the national sport and other less positive reasons. However, a win for a woman would make it three female winners on the bounce and I I don't see it happening. So, will I be out of a job if women in sport become this normalised, nay, celebrated? I don't know. I hope not. Anyway... There is some tough competition by way of Stuart Broad and Frankie Dettori, who I think are probably the main contenders here, both of whom are quite beloved and both of whom have retired this year. So this is the last chance, basically. I think people will wrongly look at this and think both Earps and KJT have heaps more opportunities. I disagree. Normalise recognising recent achievements. 
Continuing on a football vibe and indeed a Mary Earps one, you'll remember Nike couldn't be asked to market a replica Mary Earps goalkeeping kit ahead of the summer's World Cup. Lads, after the initial batch went on sale eventually in October, those kits sold out in hours. Now, another batch went on sale on Monday and sold out in five minutes. BBC Sport writes... It is understood that the number of shirts available was comparable with the amount of goalkeeper kits on the website for previous men's tournaments. There you go. Arsenal beat Chelsea 4-1 on Sunday in front of another record attendance at the Emirates Stadium in North London. I've just booked tickets for me and the girl to attend Arsenal v Manchester United at the Emirates in February. Hopefully we can beat that record again. Maybe, following on from the January transfer window, I'll be watching Mary Earps playing for the other side this time. Either way, I support Charlton Athletic, so I'll be happy. That's all for me this week, and I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Why am I fully nude and enigmatically holding an egg? (laughs) The lady, explain yourself. This week, we watched a film that has the brass balls to stick its finale on the poster. 1973's The Wicker Man, which celebrated its 50th birthday last week in the way all cult films do, with a lot of chat on Twitter and a late night showing on BBC4. It's part of a short-lived genre of British cinema known as folk horror, which also includes horror legend Vincent Price as Matthew Hopkins in 1968's The Witchfinder General. You might like that, Jen, or not like that. I can't make up my mind. Love Vincent Price. I would like to watch it. Here we get another horror legend, Christopher Lee, but more on him later. (laughs) So much more. Honestly, him prancing like a tit is like, for me, (laughs) top five moments in film ever. He's incredible. I I had such a lovely time with Christopher Lee. Sorry, carry on, Hannah. Now, I called this a cult film, and it certainly is. Film magazine's Cine Fantastique called it the Citizen Kane of horror movies, and Total Film magazine (laughs) named it the sixth greatest British film of all time. During the 2012 Summer Olympics, Jen, always a big fan of 2012 facts, Mm -hmm. in the opening ceremony, it was included as part of a sequence that celebrated British cinema. And using the perpetual gauge of cult importance, do the League of Gentlemen like it? Yes. It scores highly, (laughs) inspiring many jokes and a whole episode of Inside Number Nine. In fact, the term folk horror only gained widespread use after Mark Gatiss used it in his rather excellent documentary about the history of horror films. It's also been credited with popularising or repopularising the concept of a wicker man. See the Burning Man Festival for more details. Based on David Pinner's novel Ritual, which itself started out as a screenplay, and directed by Robin Hardy, The Wicker Man began filming in Scotland in October 1972, meaning that since the film is clearly set in the spring, blossoms had to be glued to the trees in many scenes. (laughs) Edward Woodward refused refused to visit the set where The Wicker Man effigy was located before filming the final scene. Therefore, the first time the character saw it was the first time that he saw it. And he said he'd never been more scared in his life, which might sound melodramatic until I tell you that he was actually still inside the structure when it was set alight. Just health and safety gone mad in the 70s. Isn't it? Woodward has also said that Howie was the best part he ever played 
And Christopher Lee said The Wicker Man was one of his favourite films ever. And if proof be needed, he worked on it for free and paid for some of the promotion from his own pocket. (laughs) It's... Why? (laughs) What? Why? Did you watch it? Did you watch it? (laughs) It's incredible. It's that kind of role doesn't come around every day. (laughs) Its third big name star is Britt Eklund, although it might be accurate to say some of Britt Eklund appears in the film. (laughs) Her speaking and her singing voice were both dubbed by two separate actresses. And since she was pregnant during filming, her bottom half, as discussed earlier, is also played by somebody (laughs) else in the nude scenes. There's a whole drama about that last bit, which we might get to. It involves Rod Stewart. We've got to get to it. (laughs) The soundtrack contains 13 folk songs, including traditional songs, original compositions by Paul Giovanni and one nursery rhyme. And everybody knows nursery rhymes are creepy as fuck. Terrifying. And talking of creepy, the film was originally released in cinemas as a double bill with Nicholas Rowick's Don't Look Now. Oh, my fucking God. Can you imagine? (laughs) Can you imagine? I nearly picked that earlier this year and I just thought, I don't I don't want to have nightmares for three weeks. <laughs> the Wicker Man was not a success at the box office, but now has an 89% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Shall we have some plot? Yes. Let's. Sure. Sergeant Howie, a policeman who is both very gaudy and a virgin. These are important plot points. <laughs> visits remote Scottish island Summer Isle after he receives a letter claiming a young girl, Rowan Morrison, has gone missing. When he arrives, locals are not helpful and Howie takes a room above the Green Man pub where he watches preparations for a pagan festival with pretty obvious disgust. Not least that all their fruit comes from cans. This is an important plot point. He soon discovers that this is an island that worships penises. And I'm going to say again, this is an important plot point in case the fact that the whole world worships penises disguises that fact. (laughs) He goes to visit local chief, Lord Summerisle, that's Christopher Lee, who's got a whole load of naked people leaping around in his garden, which... When my flatmates and I were watching the 30th anniversary showing on BBC4 is exactly the moment one of their mums turned up and called us perverts. True story. (laughs) And, you know, fair. I should have made her watch it all and learn a lesson about what happens when you're really judgy. (laughs) Howie becomes convinced that the islanders are about to sacrifice Rowan in an attempt to placate the sun god after a bad harvest. He infiltrates festivities dressed as a fool. This is an important plot point in an attempt to save Rowan. But it turns out that an island that loves wangs is never going to see a small girl as a sufficient sacrifice. Enter the Wicker Man. Oh, Jesus Christ! And Howie's (laughs) terrifying demise. That is my most used gif ever. One thing to add, and that's that studio executives suggested they try a more upbeat ending to the film in which a sudden (laughs) rain puts the flames out and spares Howie's life. Massive sigh. Didn't the goat wee on Edward Woodward during the filming of the final scene when they set fire to it? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and that didn't put the flames out, so you know. I mean, that would have to be a tempest to put that out. 
Yeah, it's pretty burny. It's pretty burny. Mickey, I think you may or may not have seen this before, possibly when you were at university, Jen. I'm thinking this is your first rodeo with the Wicker Man. Yeah, <laughs> very much You, so, you yeah. really hedged your bets with your guess on whether I'd seen it or not. You may or may not have seen it. I had never seen it before because I thought it was a horror. It's billed as a horror. And in fact, it's a folk comedy. <laughs> let's, let's tell it as it is. Yeah. It's not scary. Well, let's start with that point. It's not scary. It's unnerving. It's weird. Yeah, it's so fucking weird. The ending is not nice to think about. So me and my mum had a long discussion about, like, I was like, I think the smoke would kill him first, so that's probably all for the good, isn't it? And then I was like, oh, maybe he'd have a cardiac arrest. Like, we were talking about, like, whether or not the ventilation of being outdoors would, like, you know, prohibit the smoke from rendering him unconscious or whatever. Anyway, so it's not nice to think about. So the ending I found to be, like, unnerving, but the rest of it I was just like, this is just fucking weird. It's a lot of sex, isn't it? Can I ask you, Jen, since you'd never seen it before, were you expecting a sudden rain (laughs) or something to come and save him? (laughs) No, I I knew that that was the end for Edward Woodward's Inspector Howie. No, I I, I knew that he died. I wasn't expecting as much sex, and I don't know why. No. But I, I read about the horror, hadn't really read about the sex, even though it's very pagan and I knew that. But I was like halfway through going... This is the 70s. There's a lot of sex and very little horror. I want to rename it Confessions of a Wicker Man. Have you ever seen Hammer Horror Films, though? Because the Hammer Horror Films are super, super... Like, there's a hell of a lot of tits in Hammer Horror Films. The early ones aren't. The later ones are. I did notice it was the second film in a row that I'd chosen that was absolutely riddled with tits. (laughs) Riddled with tits. Let's rename the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Riddled with tits. Now, I'm guessing... Jen, you hated it from from your face, your demeanour and what you've said already. (laughs) Uh, From your face. Face, demeanour and everything I've said already. It was just weird. There was too much folk music. (laughs) It did kind of feel a bit like if uh, Christopher Guest had made like a, a spoof horror film or something. It did have a bit of that vibe about it, but I couldn't really see the funny side. I was just sitting there like, what? What? Not even when Christopher what? Lee is just like dancing. Uh, it's, it's and actually, I the couldn't end identify singing, him. It's amazing. For ages, I was like, in my mind, he is just Sauron. Is he Sauron or, or what's his character's name in Lord of the Rings? Yeah, in my mind, Sauron, Sa- I think, yeah. Sal- Salaman he, or something. Is that it? Sauron's the the, the burning the eye, eye thing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, in my mind, he is just that dude from Lord of the Rings. So I was just like, where even is he? I can't see him. Who is he? And then I was like, that must be him, because I know he's, like, in charge. Like, he's the main baddie or whatever. But, yeah, I couldn't even identify him for quite a long time. So, And then he put glasses he... on and Kath got well confused. <laughs> <laughs> but there were just stuff like... Is it him at that point? There's someone in a kilt who like goes and sort of ha- has like a very unsubtle conversation with Britt Eklund from like downstairs yeah, at the pub. Like, and you're just like, this is just too silly to be funny. Uh, I, I heartily disagree. Yeah, me too. I laugh, I, I laugh a lot. so much in this film. So much. Yeah. And Christopher Lee, oh, every time he was in a scene, I was like, this is just incredible. I kind of want to rewind it and watch it again. And made better by a fact I discovered this morning in that he was really disappointed that in one of the very, very many cuts made when it was edited, they cut a whole scene of him having a very long discussion with Edward Woodward about apples. And I thought, I want to see that. (laughs) I want to watch it. Yeah. (laughs) I think he's absolutely amazing in it. He plays it just the right side of 
camp as the gratuitous tits, right? He is clearly having the best time. And so I was happy to go along for the ride. Let's talk about women because obviously they very clearly say in this, you know, we worship the penis. But like I say, what society doesn't, to be honest. Not here on Riddled with Tits podcast. (laughs) It is kind of built in that women characters aren't going to do well out of this given that the society, there is no friction. This is a united society. There is no women standing up and saying, hey, I'm not just going to shag who you tell me to shag. The teacher is very forceful, sort of strong, powerful woman in that sense, still is preaching the same stuff about, you know, how penises are great. So it it kind of feels intrinsically that this film is going to fail women. But the conversation about Brett Eklund you kind of feel like it it did fail women. She wasn't aware that they were going to film a bottom half and put it on her, essentially, and not tell people. It was almost deep fake, wasn't it? Because, yeah, she hadn't been warned and they filmed it after she was no longer on set. So it was really fucking manipulative and tricksy of them. Yeah, agreed. I don't understand. So I read about it and I read that she was annoyed about it. But I read that she didn't want her bum to be... So was she annoyed because it looked like it was her? Yeah, yeah I think but so. But it wasn't. Yeah. Okay, right, that makes more and sense. And it caused some problems with her boyfriend. Rod Stewart. Right, okay. he, he lobbied to get the film banned because of Britt Eklund's Not Bottom. That whole scene, that whole weird-ass musical number, it's like a weird soft porn music video of some very strange dancing and singing. I was like... I mean, it's been weird so far, but I felt like it took a, an extra leap into what the fucksville. Yeah. I was like, what's going on? This is lols. And also weird. Yeah. That leads to the question that I was going to ask, which is we are using the word comedy, you know, but it's commonly considered to be a horror. I mean, is it also a musical? Discuss. <laughs> it's a terrible musical. Can I say something about the women quickly? Because you could argue that actually it does sort of subvert, I don't know if that's the right word, but like the trope. So in a lot of these things where it'd be like, you know, femininity is this sign of like fertility or whatever, or like women are the symbol of fertility. And in a lot of things like this, you would imagine it's going to be a woman who gets sacrificed. But in fact, they worship the penis and the penis gets sacrificed. So you could argue that it in fact is the opposite. Oh, I'm not but sure. But there's we can way go too many far. tits. Yeah, there's way too many tits for me to I actually was with believe you for a while, that. Yeah, same. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a possible counter argument. I mean, she's not naked for no purpose. The point is, they're testing Edward Woodward, aren't they? Although, it's really there's a wall but between that, exactly them. That. All there's he can the hear question. is like, bum, bum, bum. That's it. He there's can the sense qu- the bottom. There's he the can question. sense the bottom. Is the point that it's supposed to add the creepiness to us rather than to him? He I mean, like, he's a what fifty-year-old virgin or whatever. He must be horny as hell. Like, I, I imagine he's he is imagining 20s, bottoms. Jen. Whatever. They just he is. made a mold back in the seventies. He is thinking about bottoms and a lot more besides a lot of the time. He's very sweaty in the in the cuts to his scene. He's very he's sweating profusely from all over his body. Yeah, his shirts come he undone by like two naked, buttons. Right. He can feel it. He can sense the bum. That's what yeah. he can <laughs> sense. He can sense nudity at all times. He's never had sex. <laughs> His nose is just constantly a whiffle for people with their clothes off. And in fairness, he has stumbled across that a lot in the past day and a half. True that. I don't know that I find it creepy. I think unnerving rather than creepy. Just weird. <laughs> 
I think it is creepy when he goes to start the plane. Because the thing is, we all know what's going to happen, basically, at the yeah. end. There's a point where you start like you say, to sense it. It's on the poster. Even if you don't know literally what's going to happen, you know, you have a sense of dread. So when he's in the plane, he's starting it, and they all pop up behind the wall with those masks on. That is undeniably That's so creepy. League of Gentlemen and very creepy. Yeah. And also reminded me of that Black Mirror episode where they've all got the animal masks on. Is that called White Rabbit? I think it's very good, very creepy. That is the bit that White I was bear. like, oh, that's a bit weird. Yeah. White bear, yeah. As someone who grew up like in semi-rural Essex, whose parents' friends were Morris dancers <laughs> and knows like <laughs> way more about this shit than I would like to confess or indeed be true. There are elements of it that are creepy that are just creeping like normal life. Yeah. Like, you know, the festivals that they're talking about are like kind of creepy and the, the hobby horse and shit like that, like... They're fucking yeah. creepy. Like they're yeah, just, I feel like I've just suddenly creepy got more, in the real world. more questions about the Sea Shanty Festival. <laughs> I might need to ask no you. No hobby horses at a Sea Shanty Festival, any, thank God. Any naked writhing? No, just like men in fleece. That's it's just it's just befleeced men of a certain generation. Okay, Befleeced septa- septagenarian men. Why is the music so dreadful? Because there is too much fucking folk. That's it. It's called there. folk horror, this genre, and I find all folk horrific. Yeah. So you'd think I'd be more scared than I was. It's very um, Mulligan and O'Hare, isn't it? It's totally like... Mulligan and O'Hare. Absolutely. I think the fact that it's set in Scotland, it just works. You know, I mean, A, it's on an island and islands are weird. They are great locations for stuff, you know, because they're like a bounded community and, and all of that stuff and, and difficult to escape. But, you know, that sort of idea we have of, like, that really ardent, like, Scottish Presbyterianism that he has, mm. the island setting of it is what makes it essential. Yeah, yeah. Like remote islands are creepy. Like Exactly. For all the reasons Hannah's just outlined, like, basically yeah. there's no escape. My mum made a point as we were watching it. She was like, well, that's nonsense at the end when he starts doing that whole, like, biblical thing. And I was just like, what are you talking about? She's like, well, if he's a Scottish, if he's a Scottish prod... I mean, that is very Catholic, what he's talking about right now. He just wouldn't be doing he that. He is Catholic because he has the body and blood of Christ, which, you know, is ironic because he ends up being meant. a human sacrifice too. But he has that right at the beginning, so it's nonsense from the start. If, uh, he's oh, supposed well, to be a Protestant. she obviously just didn't notice it at the beginning. But let's He did have his glasses on at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> the performances... But what is a very, very silly film? Very Monty Python when they go to Camelot and they go, oh, Camelot's a silly place. Let's not go there. I feel like we went to Camelot, guys. But the performances are great because Edward Woodward does give it his all and he is really dour. And, you know, I didn't want him to get burned and sacrificed because I'm not a fan of human sacrifice. I think it's wrong. But he is a bit rubbish, isn't he? He's just a bit boring and a bit staid. He Nicholas Cage, is it? Edward Woodward. He, it's like he thinks he's in a serious production and it's it's not. Like he, he Nicolas Cage is it. But I think it was supposed to be a serious production and it's only Christopher Lee who's gone, I'm going to have a lovely time with this. I think it's absolutely every other aspect of it that's just like, nah, fuck this shit. It, he is like the only thing about it that seems serious. Everything else is just like... To me, that's this? the whole point of The Wicker Man is that that final scene is that he mm. is in... This thing being burned to death, and they're all. It's just how fucking ludicrous the juxtaposition of those two things are. It needs to be silly because if it wasn't silly, that massive shock at the end wouldn't wouldn't work. Yeah, it wouldn't work. 
weirdest top of the pot video ever. That episode of Father Ted where they go to like a fair or something on the mainland or maybe it's not on the mainland and they're like, there is a small child stuck in the tunnel of goats and then it just cuts to like pictures of people river dancing on some rocks, like basically. Because it reminds me in that way of that famous Coca-Cola advert where they all stand on their cliff top and sing, I'd like to teach the world to sing. Oh, yeah, I remember that. It's got a touch With of... a massive wicker man burning yeah. in the background with yeah. the grey of Pepsi Max in it. Kill some pigs at the same time, yeah. you know. Because I fucking love this. I will not accept that it's not a good film. It is so silly, and then it just goes <laughs> so mad dark. I think it's wonderful. I had a much nicer time than I was expecting, because I'm, I'm not a horror fan. But I feel like maybe I just need to go back and revisit all horrors made in the 60s and 70s because turns out they're fucking funny, man. They're like, I'm having a lovely time. The birds, hilarious. This, hilarious. Maybe I should try Don't Look Now again. Maybe not. A couple of things to say. That Mark Gatiss documentary about the history of horror films is on... You can find that on YouTube. It's really good. It is really interesting. And it will have... I haven't seen it for years, but it does have shitloads of stuff about the Hammer horror films in there. If anyone, probably not you two, but if anyone's interested in the history of horror films, they're good. Also, two of Robin Hardy's sons are making a documentary called Wickermania, which is about the Wicker Man, and are funding it on Kickstarter, which I'm amazed given the number of high profile fans there are of this yeah. that they haven't raised the money already to do that, to be honest. Mm, that is weird. I think someone would be well up for producing that because as a uh, cult film. Yeah, you'd think there'd be quite a lot yeah. of interest in it. And it's like a genuinely interesting story when I was reading up about it. Let's do it. The Wicker Man, rated or dated? <laughs> I mean, it's dated, but yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I think it's dated. I don't know that it is. But I think it is totally rated at the same time. How is it dated? What are the dated bits? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> Literally everything. The making of stuff. There's also some questions about treatment of animals in this that has been raised. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think in the making of it, it's dated in the sense that I can't imagine anyone would be able to make it like they made it. Like I don't think him... you're allowed to set fire to something an actor exactly. Is in, to putting be him in something and torching it. Also, <laughs> I can't imagine. So in that sense, it's it's dated. Yeah. I meant more the story. I think the story still is Absolutely. the story. And the yeah. question is, what makes him right anyway? What makes what makes Howie right? Nothing makes him right. Yeah, um, his whole religion is based on a supreme sacrifice of which he has just become. Yeah. I, I guess it is dated. It is very, very, very 70s confessions of a wicker man. And uh, I've had a lovely time, so I am going to race it. Yes. Come on now. Jen, what are we having a horrible time watching next week? And I say that because oh, you man. already pre-warned me it was going to be shite. It's Gwyneth Paltrow again, guys. We're watching Shakespeare in Love. Oh, Hannah, ha- Hannah is on record <laughs> as hating this so hard, whereas I have I it didn't on know VHS. That, sorry. <laughs> oh, dear. Hannah's face. Oh. I can feel a poorly coming on again. <laughs> Look over this one, yeah? Standard issue for all women.